Shabbat Shalom. It is a great pleasure and a great honor to be here, and especially after participating in the beautiful service. Thanks for all the rabbis and the cantor that conducted it. It was really an uplifting experience. I had the pleasure to be in this community in Orange County for the whole week, and the result of it is that I know quite a few of the faces present in this synagogue. Now, I have to apologize for them because they would hear some of the things that they heard during the week that I would like to mention tonight. I would like to start by quoting the Jewish-British philosopher, Seriziah Berlin, who was asked, what is the unique thing about the Jewish people? What is the problem of the Jewish people, was the exact question. His answer was, they have far too little geography and far too long history. Now that is quite a perceptive observation. We won't talk tonight on the far too little geography. We hear about it in the news every day. We would, we would take a little bit of time to discuss the very long history. Because before one speaks on mysticism, one needs to remember one thing. We have been around for more than 3,000 years. Most of this time, the Jewish people did, were not living in their country. It means they were on exile. In the course of exile, they had plenty of time to develop various ways of creativity. Unlike other people who had lived in their own country, within their own borders, within one lingual unity, the Jewish people had to create an imaginary community, a community of memory, a community of imagination, because they didn't have geopolitical unity as everybody else. In the course of 3,000 years, they had plenty of time to ask themselves, what is that exactly they wish to commemorate? What is that exactly they wish to transfer from generation to generation? In a very general way, one may say that the Jewish people had devised two avenues. They're both well known to you. One of them is called halacha, which means the law, and the other one is called agadah, which means myths. Law, as you know, is all the different instructions that people should live according to. We were never that great following the laws, but we knew what are the ideals that we are expected to live upon? It is important. Don't ever think that our predecessors were fantastically observant and kept each one of the 613 instructions. It was not so. However, they learned those 613 instructions and they explored and they interpret and they took interest. And in a very general way, one may say, that in every Jewish community for the course of the last three millennia, there would be people who would learn the law, who would be people who would expound the law, there would be people who would impart it, and most people didn't follow very well. But they were familiar with the ideals. They understood where the ideal is, and there was one precondition for this tradition. You had to provide a reference to anything you said. If you say that you should need to observe the Shabbat, you have to say, where is it written? If you say that you need to observe Yom Kippurim, you have to be able to say, 
It is because I observe this holiday because it is said in the book of Leviticus that that's the law. Now, in the course of 3,000 years, there was plenty of time to develop the legal traditions. We were always great lawyers, people who, people who expound the law. As I said, the one common denominator to all legal traditions is that you have to be able to provide a place of reference, a precedence, a textual point of reference. This is one avenue. That's not the avenue that I'm going to discuss. This is called the law. I'm interested in the other avenue, the one which is called Agadah, or mythology, or stories, or free imaginations, or what is exactly the definition of Jewish mysticism, which is history of creative imagination created by the lost, the losers, the vanquished, the exiles, those who were banished from their country, those who lived in a very impossible situation. It's important to me to clarify this point, and I would use the quote from Marcel Proust, the Jewish-French author, who said the following after the Dreyfus trial. Marcel Proust, who was born to a Jewish mother, Mrs. Weil, said the following after the sentence of Alfred Dreyfus. Now, in a time of hardship, it is absolute necessity to live in the world of imagination. When it is impossible to bear the atrocities of reality, the only place to explore is the world of imagination. Proust, as I said, says it in relation to the Dreyfus trial, when a Jew, when a French officer of Jewish origin was charged in betrayal, an utterly false charge. He was a devoted officer, he was charged on anti-Semitic ground, and Proust, with all other Jews of France, responded bitterly. But Proust said exactly what was the response of Jewish mystics in a course of three different millennia. When reality is intolerable, you resort to the imagination. You create alternative realities. How do you do that? By exploring in your imagination, in your dreams, in your spiritual ways. The difference between law and myth is that here in the mythology or in the mysticism, you need no precedent you need no point of reference. You are a free thinker. So every Jew was invited to be, to participate if he would have liked, and in this case it's only he and not she, because only men were, only men were expected to be trained in the legal tradition and in the mystical tradition. Every Jew was invited to participate, but naturally only few could have. Just as much we all know to read, but not each one of us is Shakespeare. It was not eliminated to any particular group. It was not limited to any particular group. However, the one thing required was a capacity to work with imagination, to explore new avenues, to create new ways. So one more time, Jewish mysticism is history of creative imagination within religious context created by 
the losers and the vanquished, the terrorized and the expelled and the banished, those who would have desired to change the reality but were utterly incapable to do so. Because of that, when we ask what was the starting point of Jewish mysticism, the answer is very simple. In the day that the first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the sixth century before the Common Era, the prophet Ezekiel had been shown a vision in which he could have told the people that there is a heavenly temple in Jerusalem while there is no earthly one. The first chapter of the book of Ezekiel is an excellent example of Jewish mysticism. Usually it is called prophecy. But the point of mysticism is that you offer an alternative reality to a reality which becomes utterly intolerable. So if in Jerusalem, in the year between, in the year 587, before the Common Era, the temple was destroyed and raised to the ground, at that decade, between 597 to 587, after the siege of Jer on Jerusalem, Ezekiel was expelled to Babylon, and he said to his listeners that he had been shown a vision in which he had been in which he had been shown that there is a heavenly temple with the cherubim, with the wings, with the gold wheels, with whatever was in the temple in Jerusalem. But there was no more temple in Jerusalem, but there was a heavenly temple. The idea that there is a compensation in heaven to what was lost on earth was the major idea of Jewish mystical tradition for 1,500 years. From the days of Ezekiel, 6th century before the Common Era, to the days of Ashkenazi Hasidim in the 12th century and the 13th century of the Common Era, the major creative work of Jewish mysticism was to imagine the heavenly world where all what was lost could have been found. In their imagination, they had crafted seven temples instead of the one temple that was lost. The literature in which this is described is called Temples Literature, Sifruta Heichalot. The literature on the seven heavenly temples where angels were serving instead of the priests that were burnt alive. There was no more priesthood in Jerusalem, but there was heavenly eternal priests in heaven. They were called Malachei Hasharet. We just now mentioned them in the prayer. Malachei Hasharet means the serving angels. Most people are familiar with this expression when we say Shalom Aleichem Malachei Hasharet. But 99 out of 100 don't know that the serving angels were, were formed in the first few centuries of the Common Era, right after the destruction of the Second Temple, when the priests were throwing themselves into the fire in the days when Titus had ruined the First Temple, their followers, who were writing Hechalot literature, had said that while there is no more serving priesthood in Jerusalem, there are seven heavenly priestly angels in the heavenly temple. So we may use the word compensation. We may use it the word projection. We can call it creative imagination. But the one important thing is 
that it was created by people who had no way to fight reality. The desolated Jews and the destroyed temple were irreversible. They could not have rebuilt the temple. As you know, the second temple was not built for the last 2,000 years. There is no more service, there is no more priestly service in Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years. But the Jews were recalling the priestly service through the angelic blessings a year after year, Shabbat after Shabbat. The commemoration of the lost temple was the subject of thousands of lines and hundreds of pages in a huge literature which is called temple literature. It was copied, it was taught, it was transmitted from generation to generation until the days of the Ashkenazi Hasidim in the 13th century in the times of the Crusades. At that period, when the new atrocities of the new millennium, of the second millennium, had started, a new mystical trend or a new mystical response was created. You all have heard on it. It is called Kabbalah. It hadn't been created in the West Coast, as often people think. It was formed, it was formed in Spain in the 13th century as a result of the horrors of the Crusades, as a result of the atrocities of the desolation of the Jewish community in France and Germany, in the generations of Rashi and Balea Tosafot and Rishonim, who were persecuted by the Crusaders, who, had, who on the way to free Jerusalem from Muslim conquest, had decided to slaughter the Jews who were living in the way of the in the route of the crusaders from germany through france to italy to take the boats to cross the mediterranean and to reach the land of israel in the 12th and 13th centuries thousands of jews were murdered thousands of families were evacuated hundreds of communities were ruined the jews could have done nothing about it they refer to that as the crusades the, no, I'm sorry, what is referred to in general history as crusades is referred by the Jewish people as gzerot taf taf nun vav. It means the atrocities of 1096 to 12,096. In those 200 years, most of the Jewish world in Europe was devastated. The response for that was Kabbalah. Kabbalah, as I said before, as any other Jewish mystical literature, is the response of the vanquished, of the losers, of the desolated, those who could not fight history, but had chosen to rework their experience in the one place when they had complete freedom, in the imagination, in creativity, in literature, in writing, in poetry. They had decided that the only thing they can do facing the atrocities of reality is to distance themselves from reality and concentrate on the past and concentrate on the future. The present was to be ignored. They decided that they're going to reinvent the past in order to reinvent the future. They had chosen the period of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yehuda, the sages of the second century, thousand years before their time. 
the people in Spain were those who chose this course of thought because Spain was the only Jewish community in the end of the 13th century that was not devastated by the Crusaders. So circles in Spain, in the leadership of Rabbi Moshe de Leon, Rabbi Yosef Gicatilia, Nachmanides and others, were starting to play with creative imagination. And they said, let us play the generation of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the generations of those who rebelled against Rome, the generations of those who are not with us for the last thousand years, but they are in our, in our literary tradition. What was the point of reference that they started this work of creativity? They said the following principles. Beyond every literal sentence, there is a hidden meaning. The holy language, the Hebrew holy language, has infinite meanings. The work of interpretation that mystical Judaism suggests is, let us explore the infinite meaning of every word. No reference is needed, no precedent is needed, only creative imagination. Hebrew, as you know very well, is a language of fruits which doesn't have vowels. You can read every word in the way that you want according to different pronunciation or according to different punctuation. Thus, you can take every word of the usual reading tradition and reread it in an entirely different way. So they would say the following principles. Beyond every hidden, beyond every hidden play, beyond every revealed experience, there is a hidden experience. Beyond every written text, there is a hidden meaning. Beyond history, there is meta-history. Beyond every word, there is endless, infinite meanings. At the end of the millennium, that's what is in the start of the second millennium in Spain, that's what the people who created Kabbalah had said. What is Kabbalah? Kabbalah means reception. From the verb le kabel, which means to receive, Kabbalah means just reception, what we had received from our forefathers. But this is not entirely true. They did not receive those ideas. They had invented those ideas. And in, while inventing those ideas, they claimed that those were ancient ideas. Those were hidden ideas that were hidden for a thousand years until the Book of Splendor had been revealed. Why those ideas would have been hidden for a thousand years? Because, so they said, now, when the Book of Splendor had been revealed, this is the sign of the beginning of redemption. As we would study in the Book of Splendor, redemption would come. So they harbored the new idea, the connections between hidden secrets and expected revelation, expected redemption. They were offering attention between the historical experience of exile and the very much hoped experience of redemption. Exile they had exercised every day. Redemption was the realm of their yearning. They were hoping for redemption, inventing redemptions in their imagination. And this is the point to 
remind ourselves that the Jewish people never had a church. There was never any central body who had told the Jews what is that that they should think, what is that that they should read, what is that that they should interpret. There were never any limitations on reading, writing, exploring, inventing, interpreting, that was entirely free. There were exact instructions what you should do on any part of the world of actions, you were told very strictly. You should eat that, you should refrain from that, you should walk like that, you should, this, you should, you should refrain from doing that in the world of action. But in the world of thought, there were no instructions. You were free reader and free interpreter and free poet and free writer as much as your imagination would allow. And people would engage in this imaginary play, imaginary interpretation, as a response to the atrocities of reality. And they would engage endless effort to reinvent the whole entire Jewish history through literature and to assure themselves that, that, that through this process of playful invention, they are hastening redemption. And so they did, because they adopted double life. During the day, they were living traditional life of Jews who are following as much as they can the traditional world of commandments, of prohibitions, as much as they can, as I said, some could more, some could less. At nighttime, they were engaged in the mystical engagement. Not everyone. Everyone was able to do, everyone who was able to do that or who was interested in engaging in that was welcome. There were no restrictions. There was no precondition. You would not be restricted by any precondition. If you had such an inclination of reading, writing, play with words, write poetry, write imaginary literature, you could have become part of the mystical groups. They had offered a new idea, and they said, we are inventing the future while we are reinventing the past. We are imagining our future while we are experiencing the atrocities of reality. What we have been doing now, Kabbalat Shabbat, is an invention of the Kabbalistic circles in the 13th century Spain, and in the 16th century, suffered. How did they do that? You know, there is no Kabbalat Shabbat in the Torah. There is no Kabbalat Shabbat in the Mishnah. No such a thing. There is Shabbat, of course, but there is no ritual of Kabbalat Shabbat. Why the Kabbalists had invented it? Because they said, six days of the week we are in exile, but on Sabbath we are on redemption. Redemption would look like Sabbath. In redemption, we would not be persecuted by the atrocities of reality. In Sabbath, we are all equal. In Sabbath, we are all happy. In Sabbath, we are enjoying reading and talking and singing. We are enjoying community and relations and human warmth and singing. Shabbat is a joyful moment. They said, this is the day of redemption. So the Kabbalists said, let us invent many rituals of receiving Shabbat, because Shabbat, among other things, was the expression 
of the one of the ten spheres that the Kabbalists invented, a sphere which was called kingdom, a sphere which was called Shabbat, a sphere which was called Knesset Israel. Altogether, it was part of the Kabbalistic freedom to reinvent the divinity. In this new invention, the Godhead was divided to male and female. The female side was called Shechina, divine presence. The female side was called Shabbat. The female side was called kingdom. Those are all imaginary expressions. However, those imaginary expressions were the background for the invention of the ritual of Kabbalah Shabbat. Because what did Shlomo Alkabet write in Lecha Dodi? He said, let us welcome the bride of Shabbat. Let us welcome the one who all week sits in the depths of the dreadful weekly exile. Hafecha, he calls it, the upside down world. But in Shabbat, the community is welcoming this moment of redemption. And if we would recite redemption every day, every seventh day of the week, we would remember how the world should be and not only how the world is. So even in the worst of atrocities of reality that exile was fraught with, every seventh day there was a Shabbat. And the Shabbat was the incarnation of the mystical notion of redemption that people would recite and think and sing and imagine and would talk about unification of the bride with the bridegroom or unification of Shabbat with the Kadosh Baruch Hu. Again, it's all imaginary, it's all ritual, but it helped the people to remember that in the depths of exile, there is a moment of redemption. Through those mystical ideas, the Jews had survived the hardship of existence. Through those literary and musical and poetical ideas, the Jews had crossed the bridge of, of hell in the way to heavenly redemption. Thousands of pages were written according to those lines, where the point of departure is, let us read every verse in scriptures in its hidden meaning, not in its literal meaning. We're all familiar with the literal meaning, there is no news there. We want to reread every sentence, deciphering its hidden meaning looking for the heavenly temples, looking for the heavenly spheres, looking to the future that we imagine. So it was what Austin Reed said, how to do things with words. How do you create with your free spirit a new alternative reality? When Isaiah Berlin said that the Jewish people had far too much history and far too little geography, he meant to say, that we never had normal reality, because reality is preconditioned by geography. We never had normal history, because history is preconditioned by unity of geopolitical existence. Since the Jews never had geopolitical unity and never had any accessible geography, they had plenty of time to explore imaginary worlds, alternative existence, poetical interpretation of the textual heritage and to create a huge library which is called Kabbalah. Mysticism or Jewish mysticism 
is first and foremost a huge library, written in Hebrew, written in Aramaic, partially translated into English, in which the Jews were playing with their imagination, building alternative worlds, the imagining yearned for redemption, hoping that one day redemption will come. The mystical literature had helped them tremendously in crossing the bridge between the atrocities of exile and the hopes for redemption. Shabbat Shalom. It's one of the clearest expositions of Jewish mysticism I think any of us has ever heard. It's very honest and historical and psychological. Um, so uh, where is the line between solace, between providing comfort for a people uh, in exile and um, something that is on the border of neurotic or psychotic in terms of denying reality and creating what you might call a false reality, even if it's comforting, <clears throat> where's the line? Well, in regard to your question, I'm not sure that clear lines could be drawn because the thing that we should take into consideration is that reality of the Jewish people is not what we experience today. For the last 2,000 years, the Jewish reality was so far from what the Jews of our time consider reality. Our reality, we enjoy, we care for, we cherish. That was not the case in the last 2,000 years. We may say that the generation that lives today, after the Holocaust, had enjoyed the best century of Jewish life that any Jew had ever had. But between the destruction of the temple in the first century of the first millennium and the reinstatement of the state of Israel, there were very few Jews who had enjoyed normal life and normal reality. Thus, denying reality was a very wise thing to do. Endorsing reality was impossible because reality was exile. For the common Jew, reality was exile. How do you fight exile? How do you live in life when discrimination and inequality and humiliation and persecution are the order of the day? We need to remember that when we say today reality is entirely new experience for the Jewish people. Thus, fighting the atrocities of reality for the last 2,000 years was a very clever thing to do. It was not a psychotic thing to do. It was reality that was psychotic not mysticism. Well, when we, look at, when we look at fundamentalists today, let's say in our own society, or in Israeli society, Jewish fundamentalists there, or Christian fundamentalists here, um, we're, we are disturbed to some degree by their retreat from reality, um, for their putting faith uh, before reason, for refusing to enter the world that we value, the modern world. I mean, you, you know, if you're an anthropologist, you can make the case that it's not fair to weigh the worlds, but for most of us, we would say it's a denial of reality. So is the Kabbalistic mentality 
still necessary or desirable today with, because, with a changed external reality? I would answer on that very wise question by the following. Thank God nobody is writing Kabbalah today. Because Kabbalah, as I said before, was written by the persecuted, by the losers, by the vanquished. I repeated it a number of times. Thus, there is no need for any Kabbalistic mentality today. Because most of the Jews, with the exclusion of those who are living in Iran, possibly, or in Iraq, most of the Jews who live today are not persecuted. Thus, there is no reason to write an alternative reality. Most of the Jews who live today don't suffer from discrimination, from banishment, from exile, from false charges, from blood libels. Most Jews today live normal life and they are utterly responsible to their choices and to their consequences. Jews of the last 2,000 years, before 1945, did not enjoy such benefit. Because of that, mysticism was, is not being written today, and luckily so. I much rather have normal life and no more mystical literature than unnormal life and plenty of mystical literature. But for the last 2,000 years, we have very rich mystical library and very little normal existence. I much rather prefer the way things are today and we have enough literature as it is. We don't need a new shelf of mystical literature. Well, you know, I, if I were a Chabadnik, I might disagree with you. I'm, I might say it was true then, it's true now, it will be true in the future. It was necessary then, now, and in the future. So how would you answer those who see themselves as the authentic, um, uh, well, the authentic receivers of Kabbalah in this day, a group like Chabad. Chabad are not exactly authentic receivers of Kabbalah. They see themselves. Then. Well, yes. Chabad, in fact, is the only group in the Jewish world who does not acknowledge the state of Israel and the existence of the Jews beyond the Orthodox world. They are extremely, they are very nice, they are outreaching, they are doing all kinds of great social work, but they don't accept the state of Israel as a solution, as a partial solution for the problem of the Jews. They are the only ones. Because of that, they are developing messianic ideology. For the rest of the Jews, there is no need in messianic ideology because they said the Jewish community in America and the Jewish community in Israel, which is the majority of the Jewish world, are enjoying normal life. The one group that says that this is not normal life is the Lubavitch group who claims that the messianic era already had begun with their leader. But we need the two sides of that. First of all, denial of reality, that that's what they're doing. Second of all, inventing of reality. So they are continuers of the mystical tradition on expanse of denial of reality. In 1948, all the Jewish circles were extremely happy about the establishment of, this, of the state of Israel. The one group that did not note it in any way was Lubavitch, because they believe that that is not a divine decree, 
that is a human that's a human action and that should not be respected so that should be not, that should be mentioned when we're talking on Lubavitch messianism um a khabadnik and and I'll get off this topic in a second and go to another one but I, just to make sure a khabadnik would say no 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 Today we are very Zionist. Today we believe in the state. It's the Satmar Hasidim. It's the Nature Karta who don't believe this. But you would say, no, when you look at their essential beliefs, you think they are non-Zionist? Well, I would say Satmar is not Messianic. Nature Karta are not Messianic. They are the Orthodox way. They choose to live as Jews lived in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the Orthodox world. That's a matter of choice. It has nothing to do with Messianism or with Zionism. They say we are the Haredi world. We wish to continue to live in the world of our forefathers and foremothers in the couple of centuries before our time. It's no more than that. It's not ancient to Judaism. It is only... Orthodox Judaism, which is 18th, 19th century development as a response to enlightenment and secularism. This is a legitimate choice. They don't play Kabbalah and they don't play Messianism. The only group that plays Messianism seriously, that's Lubavitch, and that's a result of the fact that they deny reality of the Jewish people as it is today. Would you, would you even say they're essential story as of late, meaning since the death of the Rebbe. He didn't die. <laughs> right. Is the belief that your leader doesn't die but is coming back is essentially the belief of Christianity, not of Judaism. No, I, I would refrain from uh, accusing Chabad in being Christian in any way. No, I don't, Nothing, mean, no, no, I don't mean they're Christian. Nothing could but be they, further no, from no, 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 that, no, me. Maybe I didn't explain it well. I don't mean, but I'm saying they have introduced to Judaism a kind of typology, a story, that is alien to Judaism. Would you say that? In other words, the idea that Mashiach is coming, that's a Jewish story, right? But the idea that the Mashiach died and is coming back, you know, he was human, he, that's my question. Is, have they twisted the, the traditional messianic story? Well, I would say it's a tiny bit more complicated than that. Because what is the Jewish response to anyone who comes forward and claims that he is a messiah? Immediately the Jews would say, it's a false messiah. Because nobody, nobody can answer the bill of the messianic definition. Maimonides had said in the 12th century, who might be a messiah? Here are the preconditions. A person who would succeed in gathering all the Jews to the land of Israel, Afterwards, he must succeed in building the temple, resuming the sacrifices, in implementing all the biblical law and the halacha in 100%. There is no single human being who is capable to do such a thing. There is no way to rebuild the temple, to reissue the sacrifices, to recollect all the Jews to the one state of Israel. Reality denies that possibility. Thus, when a person comes forward and says, I am the Messiah, or whether his followers claim, I am the Messiah, the question that always would be confronted with him would be, 
Did you manage to build the temple? Did you manage to collect all the 12 tribes? Did you manage to rebuild Jerusalem? Did you manage to rework these sacrificial uh, cycles? Since the answer is no, nobody can say that he is the Messiah. Now, if Chabad claims that Rabbi Menachem Mendel Alava Shalom was the Messiah, they have to prove in what way he was a Messiah. So it's not the issue of his coming which is the problem. It's the very question of the identity of him as a Messiah which is the problem. So I'm not troubled at all with the so to say messianic shades of the re-coming of the Messiah. I'm troubled with the question who can qualify to be a Messiah if those are the preconditions. Uh, let me, I think this comes from Jacob Katz, from Yaakov Katz, what I'm about to say. I read this a very long time ago. But um, that he saw Kabbalah as the as the almost the vanguard of liberal Judaism because it was a powerful deviation from the Mitnagdim, from the rabbinic rationalist tradition, and and it allowed in in Germany in the 19th century, well even before the you know in Haskalah in the century earlier. It allowed an, an enlighteners and then reform Judaism to create a new kind of Judaism. In you know they were sort of you know hit from one side, the wall was smashed from one side by the Kabbalists, and now by the other side by the reformers. Do you accept that view as um, as the, maybe the most successful um, challenge to rabbinic Judaism that then allowed Judaism to reform itself in the modern era? That's a very complicated question, and it had been challenged by scholars. And if I'll rephrase the question, or I would rephrase what Kat said, Jacob Katz, a very important historian, had said that the traditional world was challenged on both sides. On one side by charismatic leadership, and on the other side by the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, you all know what it is. It is secular criticism on the foundations of religion. Charismatic leadership is what Hasidism and Kabbalism and mysticism is all about. It means leadership of people who claims that they have a divine revelation, mystical inspiration, literary prophecy, poetical insight, those are very serious things, and there are people who are definitely endowed with those capacities. Those were the leaders of the Hasidic movement, which was the incarnation of Jewish mysticism in the time of the Enlightenment, in the time of the end of the Orthodox Jewish world as the Mithnagdim wanted it to carry on. Now, did Hasidism enable reform Judaism? I don't think so. Did Enlightenment enable Reform Judaism? Possibly. But I think the one point of importance that Kabbalah and Hasidut, or Kabbalism and Hasidism, had enabled was the notion of diversity, infinite imagination, infinite creativity. Because as soon as you endorse the idea of infinite diversity in your imagination, you open the door to infinite restructuring of the world of your values. So on top, you don't disregard other values, but you offer new values. Kabbalah and Hasidism, which is the expression of Jewish mysticism, had 
introduced numerous ideas about how the God should be perceived, how the Godhead should be refashioned, how biblical scholarship should be done, how mystical interpretation could be introduced, diversity, multivocality, numerous disciplines were integrated into Jewish life through the mystical avenue. So in that, Yaakov Katz is utterly right. Pluralism, many voices, freedom of choice, freedom of creativity were paved, they were found within the mystical tradition much more than in the halachic tradition. The halachic tradition was constrained by the precedent and by tradition. The mystical tradition, which was free from references, from textual references and from precedents, could have invented anything that it had chosen. Let me give one very short example. In the book of creation, which is an important mystical book of very short size, we are told by the anonymous author a new story of creation. In mystical Judaism, you can do that. You can offer a new alternative story of creation. According to the book of creation, when God Almighty had decided to create the world, he had created 32 passes of wisdom, which are consisted of 22 letters and 10 numbers. Those are the 10 digits or the 10 spheres, which later on were introduced in the Kabbalistic vocabulary. The end of this sentence, is, which starts, when God Almighty had chosen to create the world, he had created 32 passes of wisdom, which are consisted of 22 letters and 10 numbers, he had created the world in three books, Sefer, Mispar, Vesipur, a book, a number, and a narrative, a count, recount, and a count. This is a new story of creation. Without going into any details, I would just point, I would just point one, one uh, issue. The usual story of creation in Genesis is narrated in such a way that we are only passive listeners. We are told that once upon a time there was creation. In the mystical story of creation that I just now mentioned, creation is a process which incorporates letters and numbers, books and narratives, accounts and recounts. In that story of creation, we are participating because words and numbers, letters and digits, are part of the human experience. So if creation is about words, we are also part of the story. So the mystical narrative of creation had expanded immensely the role of human being in the course of the creative process. So it's not only God the creator and human as creatures, but it is God and human beings together who are fashioning the creation according to the fund foundational book of Jewish mysticism. Think about it, how much new horizons, how much many new avenues we are given when we are told that creation is about words and numbers and letters and not only infinite powers which we are not sharing. Let me ask you one final question, and this is a personal one. How did you get interested 
in mysticism and Kabbalah. I'm not interested at all in mysticism or in Kabbalah. <laughs> I'm interested in silenced voices. I'm mm. interested in the tragedy of the Jewish people. I'm interested in forgotten books, in silenced voices, in the expression of the vanquished and the exiles. All my life I was interested in reading what people were writing in any given historical period, and especially what the Jewish people wrote in the course of the generations. I never defined myself as anybody who is interested in Kabbalah or in mysticism. That's other people defining me. I never defined myself that way. I defined myself as a historian of forgotten voices, as a historian of the desolated and the vanquished, and I'm eager to find any written expression of people who were kicked out of history, of people who were put in the side, who were banished and who were exiled, and who didn't enjoy normal life. Great literature is often created when there is a great wound, when there is a great catastrophe, when there is a great rapture. Since the Jewish people had experienced raptures and catastrophes and tragedies, they had created the most marvelous literature. I cannot imagine ending on a more powerful note. We'll see. Thank you to Professor Elior, and we'll see you inside the social hall for the Onig Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.